Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. The idea is that somebody essentially tells you not to believe what your own eyes are seeing and does it so uh, so dramatically that you become convinced that your own brain is lying to you and that you should listen to their spin rather than the clear facts in front of you. In my article, I make the idea that that's what the NCA is, at, is doing at this point, which is that they are telling you to ignore the obvious fact that keeping players' pay capped at the current levels – is, has nothing to do with why people watch college sports. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, our guest is an antitrust economist who's part of a new project, HB League, working to create a non-amateur version of college sports. His name is Andy Schwartz, and he will be speaking about his new piece at Deadspin, which is called The NCAA is Gaslighting You. We cannot wait to speak to him. Also, I've got some choice words about sports and what it could look like in a more sane society. I've also got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Kaepernick Watch, and more. But first, let's go to Andy Schwartz. Um, Andy Schwartz, uh, first and foremost, for, for my, shall we say, uh, audience of a more advanced age, can you define gaslighting for us? <laughs> well, actually, I think that people who are of a certain age might actually remember the movie. Um, that's that's the an idea... even greater age, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. We're stuck in the middle here. I'm a Gen Xer. Um, <laughs> the, the idea is that... Um, somebody essentially tells you not to believe what your own eyes are seeing and does it so uh, so dramatically that you become convinced that your own uh, sensory, your own brain is lying to you and that you should listen to their spin rather than the clear facts in front of you. Uh-huh. And and in my article, I make the idea that that's what the NCA is, at, is doing at this point, which is that they are um, – telling you to ignore the obvious fact that the, uh, keeping players' pay capped at the current levels is, has nothing to do with why people watch college sports. So how is the NCAA gaslighting us? They, they have a, a legal theory, and, and it really is. It's concocted in some sense by lawyers and maybe economists, so I might be, uh, my profession might be partially to blame, um, that the reason that they should be allowed to cap how much college athletes get paid at what they do get paid is that if they got paid a, more, and sometimes they say even a penny more, that people would stop watching in droves and that the sport would die. And instead, over the course of, I would say at this point, 130 years, we have evidence that every single time that the pay levels change up, uh, nobody stops watching. When they go down, nobody starts watching. Um, that the cap 
is done for completely different and very obvious reasons than anybody who wasn't listening to the spin would see, which is that it's done to save schools money or maybe better put an attempt to save money that then gets spent elsewhere. And where it gets spent elsewhere is to the benefit of the people who are making these claims. It gets spent on coaches. It gets spent on athletic directors. It gets spent on upgrading the facilities of the university as a whole, which the university gets to keep as opposed to the more direct way that people get compensated in most markets, which is with pay, which then they, and also, by the way, the the federal government would get to keep because the athletes would get paid more and they would pay taxes. So we really are all being robbed in some sense by this gaslighting. Now, um, I, I found uh, part of the, his, the history in your piece really interesting. Um, and you explain that the NCAA adopted this amateurism line um, a harder line on the amateurism line in the 1970s out of economic self-interest. Can you speak about that history of what happened as the 60s became the 70s and how that changed the NCAA's posture towards amateurism? Yeah, and if I can give a real quick background, the NCAA was always in favor of amateurism from its founding. It was founded, this is the irony of life, it was founded to protect athletes from head injuries and it immediately adopted price fixing as its primary goal. And we can see that now where in courts cases, the NCAA vigorously defends the price fixing, fixing while denying that they have a duty to protect athletes' heads. So, um, but it wasn't until 1956 that the NCAA acquired the power to enforce its amateurism rules. And in 1956, it defined uh, what was amateur as being paid only a certain amount. And that certain amount was you could get tuition and fees, room and board, books and supplies, and what's known as laundry money, which was at the time $15 a month. That's like something like like nowadays, like $2,000 a year with inflation. And um, um, in the 1970s, when the various uh, stagflation and oil shocks hit the country and everybody was feeling a pinch, they got together in Chicago and they had a special convention on economy. And as an economic, and I mean this not in the sense of, of the field of economics, but as an economy move to save money, they canceled the supplies part of what was allowed and the laundry money. They just took it away. They said, as of tomorrow, as of today, if you get $15 a month, it's totally fine. You're still amateur. As of tomorrow, if you get $15 a, a month, that's pay and you'll destroy the sport. So this is the idea of the gaslighting, which is that they had to then go into hardcore gear and, and convince everybody that even though for the last 20 years, athletes had gotten laundry money, that now it was a, it was a threat to the sport. And um, while at the time it was, they were clear, it was just for economy moves, in retrospect, once the, the, the lawyers and the economists got a hold of it, no, 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 this is not an economy move. This is because amateurism is central to what creates demand for the sport and the NCAA has to be the, the the source of defining it even if your own eyes have shown that $15 a month had nothing to do with the popularity of the sport. Mm. And how has that changed since the 1970s? Okay, well so that rule was in effect from the 1976 season until the beginning of the 2015-16 season. And in the, in the middle, meantime, there were a couple of lawsuits. There was a, a lawsuit by Jason White of Stanford in 2006, and there was, of course, the O'Bannon case that started in 2009, where among the things that were, were alleged and in O'Bannon proved was that taking away that laundry money had nothing to do with demand, and therefore, under the antitrust laws, wasn't in this small category of things you can collude about 
because they're on net good and was in fact in the set of things that no, 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 you can't price fix. And so right like literally, literally the day before Judge Wilkin ruled in O'Bannon, the NCAA passed a rule saying, you know what, we're going to let the power five conferences decide whether they want to reinstate laundry money. And the, the laundry money terminology is a little bit on PC because it implies that men need to pay women to do their laundry. So it's now called cost of attendance, but it's essentially the same idea. And um, the judge ruled the next day saying you it's against the law to cap pay below full cost of attendance. By January of, uh, uh, that was in August, by January, the Power Five had adopted cost of attendance. And then in August of 2015, cost of attendance came out. And pretty much we're at the spot now where every FBS school that plays major football, including the group of five, gives their athletes full cost of attendance. And this is like a perfect test. This is a, a hypothesis. Paying more than the old cap for 40 years was a threat to the, the viability of the sport in terms of people's interest in it. Okay, let's start paying people more than the cap. So where's the drop? There, there isn't a drop. Now, there is secularly in this overall way, in the same way that every sport is experienced for the for the most part, there's a decline in 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 live attendance in sport. And we see a little bit of that on the fringes in college college football and college basketball as well. But in terms of the real measure of of demand, which is the revenue that that um, schools are able to generate through the price of of tickets or through licensing, Demand has remained strong. There's no evidence of any decline. And so the idea is there's even if there is some sort of like minor group of people out there saying, you know what, now that they're getting cost of attendance, I'm not going to go watch. It's swamped by the overall popularity of the sport. It's not a threat to the sport. And in fact, I suspect if you were to go in and go to any game, even a game that's poorly attended and ask people like, well, the guy who used to sit next to you, why isn't he here? He's not going to say, oh, well, you know, that, since they started getting those $4,000 checks – it's just not the same sport for me anymore. No, it's more like the seats are uncomfortable. It's a pain to schlep here. My TV is so good. You know, all of the real reasons that that we see um, live sports mm -hmm. in decline, Not nothing to do with compensation. Well, why don't people just uh, point at the Olympics and say people made the same arguments about the Olympic Games and Olympic athletes and when that ended in the 1980s, uh, the old amateur rules, it didn't end anything. I mean, the world went yeah, on. So it's so frustrating because here's here's a great example of where the gaslighting works. In the O'Bannon case, there was evidence from my business partner, Dan Rasher, of just that. And also from uh, Stanford economist uh, Roger Knoll, which was that the Olympics had that exact same mantra. Then they changed and nobody, nothing happened. The, 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 the ability of the Olympics to sell its TV rights kept growing and growing and growing. Um, the, the Olympics are fine. And in the appeals and, and the judge in the O'Bannon case said, yes, here's here's a very good analog. This is evidence that the general proposition that uh, fans care about the pay level of the athletes in terms of deciding their choices is false. It goes up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit on a two to one decision literally says the Olympics is a bad analog because they were never really about amateurism. Oh and my God. There, I know. And there's no footnote. There's no citation. They, they, they just say this because it is a way for them 
to ignore the facts in front of them. And so in the in the most recent case, the case that sometimes people call the Kessler case because Jeffrey Kessler is involved, it's uh, Alston v. NCAA is another name for it. In that case, there was a lot more evidence presented specifically saying, look, here is all the times that people like even up to like the 80s, right before the rule changed, where people were banned from the Olympics over you know, the sort of petty amateurism violations like Ingemar Stenmark got in trouble because although he was allowed to get endorsement money, he hadn't shared it properly with the Swedish Olympic Committee, something weird like that. And so he was stripped or banned. And like and then, you know, two years later, OK, well, actually, it's fine to get it and no change. Hopefully, when we get if it goes up on appeal at some point, the court will look at the facts and not say, like, well, we have a precedent where we said without support that the Olympics aren't about were never about amateurism and instead we'll say, oh, turns out here's more information and we were wrong. That's an iffy situation in, in legal world because of the the value of precedent. But it shouldn't be in terms of like people listening to this podcast. You can look and see and that is it's factually false. And so well, I don't know why we would let a legal fiction trump what our own eyes and, and brains know. Mm. So where are we currently with this FBI case? And I was hoping maybe you could explain this because people might have heard on the fringes that there's this FBI case involving the NCAA. It's drawn in some of the biggest names in the sport like Bill Self at Kansas, Zion Williamson, who's a freshman at Duke, uh, and a slam dunking machine. Uh, where, where are we with this? What is the FBI doing? What are their motives? And what, why are they committing resources to this? And what do we hope to find out, if anything? Yeah. So I don't know if I can really tell you the whys of why the federal government behaves the way it does. Um, my my hunch is, is that – well, so what happened was I think they were investigating somebody for a financial crime, like something like a Ponzi scheme. And they discovered that some of the money was ending up involved indirectly in efforts to recruit athletes to colleges by providing their family members or people associated with them with uh, payments from – sneaker companies from apparel companies and so the wiretapping began because you got to admit that the sort of things that people do to dodge the ncaa kind of look like the sort of things that people do to dodge law enforcement let's meet in a parking lot in new jersey and i'll hand you some money in cash so i can see how some fbi agent who maybe is not uh steeped in the bagman culture of college sports might say, oh, my God, this must be illegal if they're doing it so furtively. But um, they effectively had to create this crazy, crazy legal theory to turn it into a, a crime because – and this is really important. The NCA is a private association and does not set law. And I think one of the, one of the defense lawyers in, the F, in this FBI case put it best. It would be the sort of the same thing is if you live in a condominium and you have a homeowners association and the homeowners association has a rule that says you cannot paint your kitchen bright green and you and three other people on the floor like we really like bright green. Let's go get some bright uh, some bright green and paint it secretly. And you just violated the homeowners association. They can probably even fine you under the the rules of the homeowners association. What the FBI did was they said the effort to conceal from the private association that you are breaking their rules is wire fraud. And um, because you're going to be imposing harm on the other party, in this case, I guess, the other people who live in the condo. And and by doing that, by 
you know, violating these rules. In the case of the FBI case, what they said was the schools receiving the talents of these excellent basketball players are being victimized because when you bring them to them, they are no longer amateurs. It's a, it's a, it's a phony amateurism because you know, having given them their, you know, their cousin or their father or their, their quasi agent money in a parking lot that, that you basically sullied them, but you hid it from the school. So the school unknowingly provided a scholarship, which by the way, cost the, the, the school very little. The scholarship, people think of a scholarship as being given to the athlete, but the school takes money from a sort of a controlled private association like the University of Louisville Athletic Association, which is a 501c3 charity, and gives it to the University of Louisville. So the flow of money is into Louisville, not out of Louisville. And um, the government said they were harmed because even though you delivered to them a great basketball player, it was under false pretenses. Well, so we'll see what the jury says. I'm hoping um, that the common sense of, of a, a Manhattan jury is that these people weren't trying – Like, and that's more than that. It wasn't just that they were harmed but that they were – the people doing this were trying to harm the school, like to inflict harm on them. I'm hoping that somebody will say, why would Adidas, which is the primary company uh, involved in this case, why would Adidas – seek to bring high quality athletes to Adidas schools with the intent of harming their business partners, these schools that they have paid hundreds of millions of dollars to for the right to put their shoes on the kids. Maybe it's because they think that people will buy more Adidas sneakers if these schools do well in, in this, in the Adidas shoes, sort of the, it's the shoes theory. Like the reason that I should buy Adidas products is because Kansas did really well because Louisville did really well. Or alternatively, we could believe the government's theory, which is they, they did it out of spite to hurt their business partners. It doesn't make any sense. I'm hoping some common sense prevails. Unfortunately, uh, the rules of evidence being what they are, the judge in that case has really, really restricted the jury's ability to get context. So first thing was during the voir dire, which is the process where the jury is selected, anybody who said they thought the NCAA was essentially – a price fixing cartel was denying athletes what they were worth was t tossed off. They weren't allowed to be on the jury because they had a bias, but there wasn't the equivalent. Like if you th think that amateurism is good, that you would be tossed off for having a bias either. So, so there's that process. And then in the course of trying to get an evidence, um, the judge denied the defendants, the ability to give an economic analysis again by my business partner, Dan Rasher of, what a five-star athlete is worth to a program to give them a sense of why delivering an athlete to these schools might be positive. He, he, he ruled that to be irrelevant. Um, there was, like we, like you mentioned, there was um, recordings of specific statements by uh, employees of the school saying that they wanted to give money to certain athletes, but different athletes than the ones specifically involved that was also not allowed to be played in front of the jury because that would be prejudicial mm. and it happened afterwards. But I think we can all think that like, gosh, if I'm trying to figure out what's going on in transaction one, and I can see in transaction two that a school is amenable to being involved in paying an athlete, it's hard to argue that they were duped in the first transaction and that they were you know, naifs that, that just couldn't couldn't even conceive of the idea when three months later or six months later or whatever it was, they're like, yeah, I can get you the $100,000 or whatever the amount is because that guy is really good. 
And that's the sort of thing that happened. And so we have to count on, in some sense, the this is it's evidentiary. And so I'm I'm reluctant to call that gaslighting. It's more like like blind like legal blinders. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that the the obviousness of the why shines through. But we'll find out. They're gonna the jury is going to deliberate starting on Monday, and I think that we could get a verdict Monday afternoon or Tuesday. Um, and I think it will set a a really important precedent. Like, let's let's step away from the NCAA just for a second. If the jury comes back and finds that a group of people trying to subvert uh, the private rules of a private organization that has no legal standing rises to a crime if it's done sub rosa, done on the sly, and if it uses a telephone or a text message, it's wire fraud. Like, there's lots of places in which um, we can end up getting arrested for what we thought was basically just everyday activity. And so, you know, as citizens, we should be worried. And then if you care about athletes' rights, it should be really worried because I feel like this is in some sense like, you know, it's a little bit like when, you know, if you take a, a state crime in a state that's unjust and you and you add federal federal status to it, it 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 changes the tenor of it. But this is one step worse because no one voted on these NCA rules other than the people benefiting from it at the schools. We as citizens have not had the right to get together and say, we do think that 18 to 22 year old men and women should be denied their right to market access in a way that no one else does. But by adding, and if you violate it, you go to jail, it turns there's there are some state laws out there that are called the uniform athlete something or other that's a basically says that on a state level and they've hardly ever been enforced. It turns it into a federal crime and it makes it very, very serious. And I think it's it it codifies the infringement of athlete rights. The irony is, of course, is that not in time for this verdict, but maybe in late December or January or February of next year. Judge Wilkin in Oakland is going to rule as to whether the exact same rules that the FBI is claiming were violated here were, in fact, a violation themselves of federal law. So we could end up in a situation, hopefully not, but we could, where people are in jail for having broken a rule, which itself was tur it turned out to be a conspiracy to violate federal law. It's very mm. weird. God, that's, that's completely bizarre. Um, so, you know, one of the things that I know you've been involved in is this thing called the HB League, and I'm hoping you could explain to us what that is and how that fits into this matrix of all these things that you're talking about. The the HBL, the Historical Basketball League, is a attempt to, in some sense, market test my theories. And I don't want to make it sound um, arrogant because I am such a minor person at this point. We have leadership in place. We're hoping to announce uh, soon um, uh, a COO that will everyone will recognize and, and will show what we're all about. But the idea that the test is, if people only care about high-quality collegians playing high-quality basketball, and you don't have to say the word how much they get paid, then a professional college league should be able to be successful. And moreover, because the, the other college leagues, the the ACC and the the Big 12 and the the Pac 12 insist on paying only up to a certain level, which right now is their scholarship plus say six thousand um, dollars. That we should be able to buy up all the good talent if we go in and offer scholarships and a hundred, a hundred and fifty thousand at certain point. Plus, you know, people say like, oh, but they're getting shoe money under the table now. We know, right? 
But in our league, they'll be able to get that shoe money over the table on top of their salary. They'll be able to do all the things that are being done under the table, but in an open and forthright way, which should generate more money because they can do advertisements for their shoe company now. Um, but if that's the sort of thing that the school – if the schools want to tie their hands behind their back and not compete with us on salary, we could want to come in. We want to get, say, 36 of the top 100 recruits for the 2020 class and put on a really high-quality summer league – Athletes are focused on school during the school year. They're focused on sport during the summer. It's their summer job. Um, and then if they're ready to go into the NBA, they go into the NBA. If they're not and they want to keep keep working on school, they can. If they want to go in the NBA and come back and finish their education in 10 years, the scholarship is guaranteed. So the idea is essentially to if the law if 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 the legal system is going to ignore the clear evidence of their eyes. Well, we're just going to use the economic system. We're going to use free market capitalism to destroy the cartel and to bring justice to these athletes and get to a spot where people go, why, why did we ever think that somehow our interest in the sport had anything other had to do with anything other than just we like good teams with good athletes who are, you know, in college playing college sports. And um, if we get there, I think it'll be it'll be a real victory for Can I ask you. Go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. Just what prevents the power conferences from just doing this? Well, like what actually stops them from doing this? And do you think one of the legacies of the HBL could be actually inspiring the big conferences where the top recruits want to go to to adopting more of a free market model? Um, yeah. So I think that in the where why can't they do it? That one of the NCAA rules, and this is a really powerful rule, and anybody who who liked football from SMU can tell you, which is that if you break the rules, the NCAA can mandate that no other school can play you. So if a single school starts doing it, um, they can effectively be ostracized. If a single conference were to start to do it, you could argue, well, you know, a conference is a sports league. And, and if the SEC did it in football, SEC fans would still watch. But when bowl season rolled around, and that's an important component, and when the football playoff rolled around, nobody else could play an SEC school because um, of this effectively what's called a, a collective boycott. Um, and one of the, re the, the things that is requested in the case in Oakland, and I think would be a great outcome, is that that rule be, be struck down and that in the future, a conference can set its own rules so that if the SEC wants to start doing it, they can. And the Big Ten as a group can't collectively boycott the SEC in bowl season or in March Madness over their belief that the SEC is paying too much. And so what you'd see in that world is that slowly but surely pay would rise to something like a market level. And it might not be nearly the level. It won't be nearly the level in the pros, but it will be high. Um, and so to your second point, why isn't the HBL afraid of this? Um, it's important. And, and, and we think that in the long run, as we walk into rooms as we go to here's the thing as somebody plays their freshman year for duke and decides to come back for a second year and we say we'll come play for us um eventually the schools will want to fight back and they will go to their conferences and say i know you've been peddling this legal fiction that what makes our sport great is amateurism but what actually makes our sport great is having high quality players and we need to compete so at that point um, they'll step in and they may have better brands and they may be a stronger. And what we're counting on as a, as a league is that they give us five years. 
because five years from now, people will go, yeah, but I really like the HBL teams. I like the summer aspect of it. And that essentially we'll be able to um, coexist with them or be up here. If they, if they tomorrow change their rules, the HBL won't launch. (laughs) Um, So yes, it could be a legacy is that all we do is do it. But for my investors sake and for the, the sake of, of the people who are really working hard right now, I'm counting on the natural NCA inertia, which is that we can't compete yet because it destroys our rhetoric and, and the, the, the gaslighting must continue until it's proven uh, to have failed. And if they give us enough of a head start, I think we'll be fine. And isn't there an HBCU component to this league as well? Um, there is. Uh, over time, we have found that the power of the NCAA to scare the bejeebers out of schools has made it so that the HBCUs are, um, I guess reluctant is maybe a word, although that might be a weaker word than it is to put their name on a team. So my, the original idea I had was that um, the HBCUs get very little of the pie. And as an example, a school like Clark Atlanta, it's a Division II school um, in Atlanta. It's an HBCU. And they get $40,000 a year from the NCAA total. Um out of the billion dollars that the uh, um, that the NCAA generates, like we were willing to pay, you know, basically to match that money and and um, get them out of the system. That wasn't that wasn't working. So the current plan is that we are going to be based in major cities where HBCUs are, and also in major cities. So HBCUs stands for Historically Black Colleges and Universities. And and they exist really in spots where there was de jure segregation, where there were, right. So you can't, there weren't HBCUs in California because even though there was plenty of discrimination in California, there wasn't legal discrimination. And we want to have a team in Oakland and we want to have a team in LA. And so it's going to be a mix. There's going to be, there's going to be these city-based teams and the, the athletes in the cities where there are HBCUs are going to be coming predominantly from HBCUs. But you may have a team in Atlanta where there's a Morehouse guy and a Clark Atlanta guy and maybe a Georgia Tech guy if he wants to go to Georgia Tech. We're going to essentially open it up for the freedom for athletes to attend where they want to go. Um, but they'll all be, they'll be regional schools from that makes sense for Atlanta and the same thing in Washington DC and the same thing. And now in Detroit, which wasn't an option when we were in our original version of the world. Um, and that an athlete who goes to, uh, an, an HBCU for one thing, we're going to be giving money to the, the school as through our scholarship fund, the athlete's going to get paid and essentially the HBCUs will get a sort of a title nine kicker that that helps them provide a scholarship to a woman uh, on top of the man that we're paying for until we launch our women's league, which will be the sort of the next thing we do. And then we won't feel the need to um, uh, subsidize a non-athlete because we'll be subsidizing an athlete. But um, uh, it's a shame, I think, because just just yesterday I read that the, the president of Clark Atlanta was resigning – uh, for personal reasons. And we, we spent a lot of time talking to Clark Atlanta and other schools. And it was clear that these schools are, are in, in dire straits, not just athletically, but overall that the, the generation of, of, 
powerful people that changed the country in the 60s who are primarily educated at HBCUs um, are now quite old. And the, the next generations um, don't necessarily see the HBCUs as peers of, of predominantly white institutions, even though it's still the case that 25 percent of African-Americans who get graduate degrees get their undergraduate degrees at HBCUs. It's a really important piece of our educational infrastructure, but um, nobody really hears about them. And we were hoping that by having the the Morehouse brand on this powerful professional league that we could help change that. But, but um, you know, fear is an, unfortunately a, a powerful motivator. So instead it's going to be a, 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 an HBL brand. And we're hoping that just by the connection to the HBCs, we can still play a small role in, in, in helping them stay afloat. Mm. And another question, I mean, this is one of the big news uh, this past week that intersects with all your work. Uh, what did you think of the recent G League proposal, the NBA's G League, which is their de facto minor league, to pay $125,000 to high school players to forego college and go straight into their minor league system? Um, generally speaking, we are we are really happy that the NBA is recognizing that the current world where basically if you are are 18, you are you have very few realistic options other than to acquiescing to the NCAA cartel offer. We're happy that somebody is pushing back. The, the thing is, and I just don't know the details, um, it's not clear to me why it has to be an either or. And we think that the HBL straddles, straddles things perfectly, which is that the G League is essentially saying um, you don't have to give up your economic rights if you don't want to. But they are saying but we're not going to help you with college. And the NCAA is is, right. is saying, look, if you want this really valuable thing, which is a college education, you have to give up your other economic rights. And we want to be in the middle. But in general, anything that provides options to athletes, there may be at the, I'm certain that there are some athletes out there that are like, thank goodness, I don't have to continue faking being interested in school to pursue my career. And for them, I think that G League option is great. Uh, we, our version, you will appeal. We think to people whose families or who themselves, like, yeah, this idea of a five-year guarantee of of school, even after I'm done with my athletic career, if I go pro into the NBA, that's that's valuable to me. Playing in major cities as opposed to, you know, in in, in Iowa, that may appeal to some people as well. Um, it's kind of the more the merrier. I'd say if if the JBA, which is the the Ball families effort kind of feels like that was it's aimed around just providing the ball brothers with a place to play but if it becomes real and if they can sort of step up and match the pay levels that the g league and that we're matching uh, uh we're paying uh you know it's sort of the more the merrier obviously i hope that our league is is super successful that we get the best talent that we we think we're providing the best combination of of value to our athletes but but really if we're going to walk the walk of being about uh, a profitable league for our investors, that's also focused on providing uh, a very athlete-centered brand and a focus, then you know I I could never tell an athlete you know what you you shouldn't have that G League option. You shouldn't even have if you want to be an amateur, go to the NCAA. But um, but we think that when there's real choice out there, that will be the best choice. Wow, well, yo. Know, 
Andy Schwartz, thank you so much for your time. Uh, before you go, I mean, you've been doing all this great work. Something that you know we ask folks is what music <laughs> you're uh, you're listening to right now as you're trying to plow through all these documents. And again, people should read this article at Deadspin. The NCAA is gaslighting you. It's a terrific work of history, not just a terrific polemic against the NCAA. Um, and it's got tremendous research, part of it. But as you've been doing all this work, what, what music has been getting you through? Well, I, I think I've hit that age where my playlist has started to uh, grow at, at extraordinarily small rates of, of growth. But oh, so I've been, going, I've been going back, so listening to Velvet Underground and The Police a lot, um, uh, especially the Regatta de Blanca album. I don't think I was even that into when I was into the police the first time around, but um, it's just, it's, it's, it's singing to me. Mm, nice. That's, that's cool, man. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll try to drop some of that in uh, <laughs> to this interview so people can know what you're listening to. Uh, Andy Schwartz, hey, thank you so much Thanks for Thanks a lot. And time. if people want to learn more about the, the HBL, yes. we're at <laughs> hbleague.com and, um, our website is about to be brand new and shiny, so go check it out. And what's your Twitter feed? Because I find it invaluable. It's at Andy H-R-E, which stands for Holy Roman Emperor, and you guys can figure out why. Ah, at Andy H-R-E, that's Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, Andy Swartz, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about what sports could look like. Okay, look, the rise in popularity of democratic socialist politicians is one of the most exciting and inspiring political developments in years. Spurred by aspirations beyond mere resistance to Trump, this generation of radical activists is not only articulating what they are against, but providing a vision for a different kind of world. As Hawaiian candidate Kanila Ng said in a commercial that went viral, what dreams would you pursue if your basic needs were met? It raises a fascinating question about what sports would or could look like if the athletic industrial complex wasn't such a cutthroat big business and sports wasn't so divided between those who play and those who only get to watch. First and foremost, in a more sane and just world, I believe that we would see a drastic change in youth sports. Currently, according to polling done by the National Alliance for Youth Sports, roughly 70% of children in this country stop playing organized sports by the age of 13. Burdened by the expectations of frustrated adults, they say, it's just not fun anymore. This is a travesty. 
Imagine instead a situation where you don't have to be some kind of star athlete to continue to play, where you can take the field because you want to build community, make friends, and exercise, where sports for kids doesn't exist to satisfy the egos of parents, but is heaven forbid, fun. If we expand access as well as the attitudes towards sports at the youth level, having young people healthier, happier, and better adjusted through exercise, that alone could trigger a tremendous change in our society. But our imagination needs to be even bolder than that. Imagine seeing an end at long last to corporate welfare and sports. Currently, billions are spent on publicly funded stadiums. Even in liberal Los Angeles right now, new stadium complexes are rising from the ground at the same time that homelessness reaches epidemic proportions. These stadiums are little more than monuments to plutocratic greed, magical cathedrals that take public money and turn them into private profit. A sane society would have billionaires pay for their own damn stadiums. Seeing all of our youth having access to sports and our tax money not misused in the subsidizing of arenas hopefully would whet a collective appetite for more change. Hopefully this would set our eyes on one of the most unjust institutions on the sports landscape, as we've discussed on this podcast, the cartel of so-called amateur sports, the NCAA. Imagine a system where our institutions of higher learning weren't factories of indentured servitude, producing billions in profit and creating a millionaire class of head coaches. Imagine NCAA athletes not being branded with the fictitious label of student-athlete, but being treated with the dignity that comes with being organized workers with full labor rights. Hell, imagine if the NFL and NBA didn't use our schools as their de facto minor leagues and instead subsidized their own farm system to groom the next generation of players. Taking on the NCAA would require explicit political movements against racism because this cartel primarily exploits, uses up, and throws away the black and brown athletes that make up the heart of college football and basketball. Fighting the NCAA could become a part of this new civil rights movement. In addition, any social democratic movement worth its salt would need to speak out for an end to Native American mass country. A broad-based anti-racist movement could even have the players in the NFL feeling empowered to speak out against the racial slur that brands the team in our nation's capital. Any movement for social democracy must also be a movement for women's rights and LGBTQ liberation. Imagine a sports world where sexism and homophobia are challenged instead of winked at or abided. Lastly, and this is by far the most important point, we need a sports world where people aren't so exhausted by the end of the workday that all they can do is watch. U.S. workers labor longer than they did a generation ago and for less pay. As the gap between rich and poor has relentlessly grown, we are also seeing the absence of leisure time. It should be unacceptable that this country can be both obsessed with sports and so physically unhealthy. Leisure time was a demand during the movement for the eight-hour day in the 19th century, and it tragically needs to become an animating demand again. We need a world where people can pursue their athletic dreams because their basic needs are in fact met. And this is a world worth fighting for. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now... Back to the Edge of Sports podcast.
And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. This week, the Just Stand Up Award goes to Capital Christian Academy, a small private school, all-black private school in suburban Washington in Prince George's County. On the Capital Christian football team, every player takes a knee before the national anthem. Uh, In the words of Hosiah Gill, 17-year-old captain of the team, we're taking a knee because of inequality as a whole. We're aware of what's going on in this country as young black males. A lot of people love football. You have them coming from places to see you do something, and why not take a knee? Why not do this to show we see what's going on in the world? The motivation for these students is not because they feel like they're following some kind of a trend, but because they've experienced racial profiling in Prince George's County which has some of the most egregious rates of race-based policing in the United States and brutality. So these are amazing young people. If people want to read a full article about who they are and why they're doing what they're doing, check out the link on my Twitter feed, at Edge of Sports. It really is a remarkable story. So just stand up award big time to the Capital Christian Academy football team. And the Just Sit Down Award. Sit your ass down goes to a gentleman by the name of Charles Johnson. Have you ever heard of him? He's 85 years old. He owns 25% of the San Francisco Giants. And he's one of the funders of this notorious organization that emerged this past week called Black Americans for the President's Agenda. If you don't know Charles Johnson, again, let me just tell you, he's white. And Black Americans for the President's Agenda is overwhelmingly funded by rich white people. And what they do is put out racist-ass ads, including one this past week that shocked people for a racist-ass Arkansas congressman named French Hill. And I don't even want to play the ad. I don't want to give any more cheap publicity to the ad. But suffice it to say, it's beyond disgusting. Imagine if you crossbred Amos and Andy with Clarence Thomas and you would have... Uh, what this ad sounds like and that's Charles Johnson and it just goes to show you even though he owns 25% of the San Francisco Giants in liberal San Francisco uh, he's letting his true colors show and we should be very aware and cognizant of what these owners do in the shadows behind the scenes when it comes to politics because they always say sports and politics don't mix but that seems to mean just for players and it just seems to mean a certain kind of politics like anti-racist politics when it comes to racist politics and when it comes to owners gee i guess that's okay so just sit your ass down 85 year old charles johnson And now it's time for Kaepernick Watch, the part where we talk about the latest comings and goings with Colin Kaepernick. The most important thing to talk about this week is news that Rihanna, she who has sold more than 250 million records in her short career and has a closet full of Grammys, has also said she will not perform at the Super Bowl halftime show out of solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. And Amy Schumer, the comedian, has said that she will not be uh, taking part in any Super Bowl commercials this year in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick. Let's see if this causes an electric effect that shimmers throughout the sports world. Very interesting development indeed. Well, that's all we have for this week's Edge of Sports podcast. Please go to iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice. Leave us a review. Leave us a rating. All of that makes a huge difference and helps us a great deal. We notice it every time. If you have any candidates for the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, you can always email me, Dave Zirin, at edgeofsports at gmail.com. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. 
We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>